Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 464 of the podcast and it is the 6th of December 2019 as I record this in Bath. So today I'm talking about the key to long-term success as a writer with the lovely Kevin J. Anderson. Now, I always enjoy talking to Kevin. He's uh, super lively and uh, very productive and has made a living as a writer for over 30 years, which gives him really good perspective over the industry um, and someone who has seen a lot of upheavals in his own career when, you know, a a particular income stream that seemed like a sure thing suddenly dried up. So he has multiple streams of income, as he will talk about still after so many years. And he does give a bit of a warning for anyone who thinks the current state of the indie author world will continue. Uh, And of course, the only constant is change. Uh, But don't worry, creatives, I will be here and we will surf the waves of change together. I I actually think if things didn't change, I would get bored and I would do something else. (laughs) So uh, that interview is coming up with Kevin. In publishing and book marketing news, The Independent in the UK this week reports that sales of audiobooks are set to overtake ebooks in 2020, according to a report by consulting firm Deloitte. Ebooks are rounding out the decade with continued decline of 4% in the last year. Print book sales also fell in 2019 by 5.4%, but audiobook sales increased by 43%. And if you remember when I came back from Frankfurt Book Fair, I talked about the Audio Summit and I said they they were saying this is the happiest room in the fair because audiobook sales are growing and growing. However, uh, don't get too depressed about the ebook uh, sort of down turn according to traditional media because traditional media does not report on borrows, subscription models like Kindle Unlimited. Um, they also don't pick up self-published ebook sales with no ISBN and most indies don't use ISBNs on ebooks. They also can't track Uh, track direct sales, for example. And uh, that was also just the UK numbers. So I am an author based in the UK, but I would say the vast majority of my income comes from outside the UK. Uh, so I, I, take, I do take this with a bit of a grain of salt, um, but it's interesting that they are reporting and the Independent is a big paper here. It's you know a respected paper um, saying that audiobooks sales are, are growing so much. I've definitely seen my revenue split change um, sort of with ebook. Ebooks used to be the massive chunk and they still are the dominant chunk, but a lot less than they used to be. And print and audio has taken a good chunk of my own um, revenue. 
So uh, the article says the appetite for the medium of audio is being attributed to more advanced technology, big name narrators and accessibility, wireless headphones, smart speakers um, in particular, and also the rise of podcasting, which may have sparked consumers to move to audiobooks. One in eight people in the UK now listen to podcasts weekly, with over half joining the podcast wave in the last two years. So... um, I'm pretty happy with this stat and I'm going to put it in my uh, upcoming book, <laughs> which, oh, which I could talk about right now. In fact, we'll just go straight into my personal update. I am in the home straight of the first draft of Audio for Authors, Audiobooks, Podcasting and Voice Technologies. Obviously, I've been working in audio for over a decade and audiobooks for the last four years, four or five years and narration for the last year uh, and voice technologies really for the last year, 18 months, I guess. And I'm, I'm finding this a very interesting book to write. I know a lot and it's all coming out of my brain, but also I've been researching particular aspects and uh, have found some very interesting things that have changed since I started the show. Uh, so I will be making some changes to my own audio podcasting business because of this. Uh, it's always good to write nonfiction books in order to put together your own thoughts on a topic. And uh, yeah, so it's a, a real challenge. Um, the book's almost at 50 thousand words. So it is going to be one of my bigger nonfiction books. Um, but I think it's a it I think it's good timing <laughs> because this is clearly becoming uh mainstream. So that is actually on pre-order. The ebook's on pre-order on most stores. Um, the goal is to have that out, uh, well, the pre-order is up for the 10th of February 2020, because I also want to do the audiobook as well. So that's the plan. I'm also really thinking about my roundup for 2019, which will come out on the show on New Year's Eve and also my goals for 2020, which uh, I'm really trying to cull myself down to a few (laughs) manageable goals uh, and it's good to think about what what you want to focus on. I mean, obviously, write more and put out more books is a kind of standard goal. But but I think we, we need to consider the bigger picture and think about also self-development and some of that kind of thing. So, uh, oh, I also have this week as this show goes out. Uh, so on the 10th of December 2019, Productivity for Authors is out in ebook, paperback, hardback, audiobook, large print and workbook editions. Yes, this is only the second time I've managed to get all editions out together. And uh, you actually do, you can't put everything live on the same day because you can't control the audiobook go live date. Um, But uh, I am now announcing you can go buy it if you want to know more about productivity for authors. Um, Links in the show notes as ever, or if you just search productivity for authors pen, P-double-N, hope you know that by now, <laughs> then you'll be able to find it. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that book and it's helped me. I've written it from the perspective of a lot of the things I've learnt in the last sort of 18 months. So I'm, I'm quite happy with that. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Uh, you can always tweet me at the creative pen, the double N, if you want to let me know what you're thinking or thoughts about the show or anything. Uh, Laurie Wolf Hefner says uh, on the translation episode, I write copy for the translation industry. They've been using machine translation for a long time. Of course, as you said, with humans involved, I use it too for translation clients. Absolutely normal. Love, Deep L. 
Thank you so much, Laurie. I really appreciated that um, message on Twitter because uh, I'm still getting emails from people who are unhappy about this idea of uh, machine translation. But of course, it's just another tool. And as you say, people have been using it for a long time. They just don't talk about it. <laughs> so this is a big, uh, a big thing. I mean, I talk about everything. <laughs> well, not everything, but I talk about the things that I consider useful for you guys as authors and um, sort of going, moving forward in our creative careers. So this is definitely good to hear. Uh, and um, yeah, DeepL is pretty cool. Tony Lopez says, nicely done, The Creative Pen. You're my most listened to podcast in 2019. And uh, shared a picture of his Spotify roundup. If you are a Spotify listener, you would have got the uh, little message from them with your year's roundup. And I was quite happy to be listed next to the Unemployable podcast, which I also listen to and recommend as a uh, creative entrepreneur. So thank you, Tony. Uh, Asha Harkness says, I've been listening to the podcast. It helps me to feel less of an imposter and more like I can get published or self-published. Fantastic, Asha. And of course, this feeling of um, imposter syndrome, like who am I to be doing this? Who am I to be writing this stuff? This never goes away. (laughs) Sorry to tell you that. Um, You will still feel that. Um, Pretty much everyone still feels that even when they get to incredible heights of success. Uh, But um, like I I wrote about this in the Successful Author Mindset after going to Thrillerfest and hearing giants in the thriller industry talking about how they still feel uh, like imposters after so many years and so many hits and so much money and so many movies. (laughs) So all we can do is feel the feeling and create anyway. And then finally, Cheryl Miller says, thank you so much for your KU exclusive versus going wide podcast from May 2019. You've helped me to finally make up my mind. Hello, Drafter Digital. I can't wait to get started. That's fantastic. Really good um, that that episode was useful. That was a solo show uh, I did back in May on um, exclusivity or going wide and what that means for you. So you can always listen to that back in the feed. So today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, and I will play a word from Tara and Steph in a minute. But just to add to what they're going to say, I've been direct to Kobo Writing Life since the beginning, and it definitely is the widest of the wide publishing options. I just checked my KWL dashboard, and I have actually sold books in 92 countries through Kobo. And if you include free downloads, readers have downloaded my books in 135 countries. Now that is very, very cool. And there are probably, I would say there are hardly any traditionally published authors who will have sold books in 92 countries (laughs) if they have signed the types of contracts that we know people sign. So um, if you are traditionally published and you've signed something like World English, are your books available in every country uh, out there? So I think that's very, very cool. Thank you to Kobo Writing Life for having a very good reporting dashboard on countries, which I particularly like. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Your support means a lot to me and helps me um, 
keep creating the show. Thanks to new patrons, Robin Sarty and Jill or Gil Ackroyd. Uh, like your tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show on Patreon with just a couple of dollars a month, less than a coffee a month, or a coffee or two if you're feeling generous. Uh, you can go to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen if you would like to support the show. And I will be doing the monthly Q&A must be this week <laughs> because we're heading into the holidays. And basically, if you're a patron, you get a link and you can ask questions. And then I do an extra monthly sort of 40 minutes, sometimes a bit more um, uh, sort of special Q&A answering those questions. Right. Here's a word from Tara and Steph, and then we'll get on with the interview. Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Steph. And we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With this in mind, we've created a way for authors to reach new readers with direct audiobook upload. Authors can now publish an audiobook right in their KWL account as easily as they can publish an ebook. You can create a customizable table of content, set the price in 16 different currencies, and even set up a pre-order for your audiobook with no date limitations. We don't ask for exclusivity, and you will always control your pricing. We currently provide a lot of promotional opportunities for Kobo Writing Life authors and their ebooks, and we will be expanding this to include audiobook titles. We're really pleased to be able to increase opportunities for authors and help them grow their audio sales in this new exciting market. If you're a KWL author and don't yet have access to the audiobooks tab, email us at writinglife.cobo.com and we'll get you sorted. We're all about providing excellent support. Don't forget, you can purchase audiobooks on kobo.com and they will download directly to your Kobo app. So all your ebook and audiobooks are available in one easy app. You can start your free audiobook trial today. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com slash writinglife. Back to you, Joanna. Kevin J. Anderson is the multi-award winning and internationally best-selling author of over 140 books, selling over 23 million copies in 30 languages and probably far more than that at this point. <laughs> 31, actually. I just sold Ukrainian rights. So oh. that's, that's one more language. One me. more. Excellent. So uh, Kevin has written numerous novels in the Star Wars, X-Files and Dune universes, as well as his own sci-fi, fantasy, thriller, steampunk and horror books. He runs work Fire Press with his wife and fellow author Rebecca Mester has ed edited numerous anthologies, written comics, games, song lyrics, and he's also a professor at Western Colorado University. Kevin, like you just make me feel tired with your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get bored. I can say that, and I, I don't have any, I don't have any patience for the people that say I've got writer's block. What am I going to do? And I'll go, well, then switch channels and do like one of the 30 other projects you can be working on. So <laughs> that, that is a, good a different, tip and, that is one of my productivity tips is that if you work on several things at once, and then if you get stalled on whatever book you're working on, then don't whine about having writer's block, just do something different because um, each one of these things earns like $2 over the course of a year. So you have to do that. Many, <laughs> you have to do lots three, of them. You know. 
Yes. No, that's fantastic. Now, you've been on the show a couple of times before, so we're not going to get into uh, your background or anything like that. But what you and I actually saw each other in person just a few weeks ago uh, at the Business Masterclass in Vegas. And you said something in one of your talks which struck me, and I wrote it down in my journal. It is a direct quote. If you want lightning to strike, plant a lot of lightning rods. Uh, So I wondered if you could explain what you meant by that and some examples in your own writing life. Well, I've always found that if you're basically, you know, to use another cliche, if you're putting all your eggs in one basket, it it doesn't help if that basket Oh, I don't know where to go with that metaphor. Uh, you know, <laughs> basically, if if I see, I here's a parable that I a, a writer that I knew early on in my career was like the the hot the hot new thing. He was a, the new author, and he was he was very very great and well respected, and won some awards. And he 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 wrote his first book, and he got it published, and uh, and the the publisher had high hopes for it, and so he decided that. He was just going to wait and see how his book did before he bothered to write the next book. Well, of course, that's a two-year process or something in traditional publishing. It took forever for the book to come out, and then it did very well. And so then he started writing his second book, and by the time the sequel was ever published, you know, everybody had rolled on. So he had like banked everything on this one book, and it didn't work. Well, and and I find that um, the way publishing changes so much, uh, if you're if you're just counting on one income stream or one thing that's going on, well, that might change tomorrow. Something might become hot that you never expected, and something that you thought was going to pay you for a long time suddenly goes flat. Um, I had one. Uh, I wrote this big thriller with Doug Beeson called Ignition, and it's basically like the movie Die Hard, only it's set on uh, at the Kennedy Space Center with the space shuttle on the launch pad, and terrorists have uh, they basically planted bombs on the on the fuel tank, and they're unless they get this huge ransom, they're going to blow up the space shuttle on the launch pad with the astronauts inside, and that was very very popular way, like five publishers bidding on it. We sold movie rights outright to Universal Studios and uh, looked like Bruce Willis might even star in it. It was really going to go. And then the Challenger accident happened and nobody wants to touch anything to do with terrorists or blowing up space shuttle. Mm-hmm. So so that lightning rod, that one thing, well, no, I got a nice movie deal out of it and I got a nice book deal out of it. But suddenly through circumstances completely out of my control, uh, that book became a pariah. No, I mean, nobody would do anything with people threatening to blow up a space shuttle because the uh, the Challenger accident and, the, and then a couple of years later, the Columbia accident, nobody wants to read a thriller about the, the space shuttle under threat. So that's not something that you can ever possibly uh, plan on. Now, on the opposite side, uh, I just, Rebecca and I just had a 10-day trip in China. And we were meeting with our, uh, we sold some Chinese translation rights and we were meeting with a publisher over there. And I was pitching my my new novel, Spine of the Dragon. It's a big epic fantasy. And I was talking about uh, the Dune books because some of those haven't been translated into Chinese. And it didn't even occur to me that uh, the Chinese very, very much love uh, awards. And one of my novels back in the 90s, a science fiction nanotechnology thriller that I wrote with Doug Beeson um, called Assemblers of Infinity, was nominated for the Nebula Award. 
And the Chinese had read my bio and I'm meeting with the publisher and they started asking me all about um, Assemblers of Infinity. Well, what's this book about and why was it nominated for the Nebula Award and why can't we read that one? Well, I've had 165 books published. That wasn't one I was planning to pitch to them because that was uh, 15, 20 years old. Um, but off the cuff, I started pitching them that one. And they all went nuts over that one. And I've even got a Chinese movie studio that's now looking at it and talking about it. So that's a lightning rod that I never expected at all to, to do anything. You, you have to be prepared to do uh, different things and and seize the opportunity when it comes out. And sometimes it might take 20 years before lightning strikes on that one. But if you try all kinds of different things, something is is sure to uh, go. Another metaphor that I use for a similar thing is that um, your career is kind of like popcorn, that if you put all the uh, popcorn in a pan, you never know which kernel is going to pop or when it's going to pop. But if you have enough kernels and enough heat, something's going to start popping soon. So put in a lot of kernels and then add a lot of heat, and then you're going to start having popcorn popping all over the place. I, I, I generally do like a whole hour-long thing about that that metaphor, but I, I know we don't want to stretch it too much. No, but. no, it's a, good, it's a good metaphor. And I think one of the frustrations uh, for that, you know, not necessarily younger people, but people, younger authors. So people who haven't been in the writing industry too long is that they think the popcorn should start popping right away. Um, oh, so, no. <laughs> so a lot of these things take a lot of time. Like you just mentioned that one in China was something you wrote a long time ago. Um, and some of your movie deals, you know, might've taken decades. Like we hear about authors who, well, Jack Reacher would be another obvious example that took over a decade to become uh, a movie. So what, what what are your thoughts on that kind of the, the waiting period and things you can do to not go nuts in the meantime? Well, and and to play up on the movie thing, uh, it's it's been reported a lot that I'm involved and Brian Herbert involved our, our new big budget movie of Dune that Legendary Pictures is doing. And it's got Denis Villeneuve as the director and a huge cast of all stars. And um, I, I can't even rattle off all of them. There's like 15 major stars in it. And this is this huge movie and hundreds of millions of dollars budget and, you know, all this this thing happening. But Brian Herbert and I have been pushing this for 21 years <laughs> trying to get the movie made. We've had a different studio and a different director and different scripts, and then that fell apart, and then a different – I mean, it's just we've been pushing this for 21 years, and now it's finally um, happening. And, of course, then it's like popcorn because all sorts of other peripheral things with Dune are happening that um, – I've, I've got a gag order and I can't announce them, but but there's lots of other Dune things that are happening that wouldn't have happened if this one if this one lightning bolt hadn't hadn't struck and now it's like sparks are going all over the place. And my my own writing career, my first book was published in 1988. I'm sorry, I'm, that's why we don't have a picture on, so you can't see how gray my hair is and all that. Um, <laughs> Uh, 1988, and I was working full time, and it took us until I think 1993 or 94 before I had my first uh, New York Times bestseller, and that was an out of the blue lightning strike because I was offered to write uh, Star Wars books. I didn't plan for that; that just came unexpectedly because 
I had worked with my editor at Bantam Books. I had always turned in my books on time. I wasn't a drama queen. I was easy to work with. And so they offered my name to Lucasfilm and they chose me to write Star Wars books. That certainly changed my career and turned everything around because um, (laughs) suddenly I've got a million people reading my books where I guarantee you I didn't have a million people reading them before that. And that led to lots more other writing uh, projects. It led to X-Files work. It led to working for DC Comics and and Batman and Superman and, and that. I mean, everything just sort of ripples out and you try it. And I guess to get back to your question about what, what do you do when it takes 20 years? Well, it, it may well take 20 years. So uh, don't quit your day job if you've got something. Uh, don't If you have a good year that come that a lot of money comes in, don't assume that next year is going to be the same, that uh, publishing is like a roller coaster. It gets up and down and up and down and uh, it's similar to the music industry. If you have one hit, don't assume that your next one's going to be a hit. And so when you do have money, you need to save well, invest it, prepare for times when uh, when it's going to be a crash and and just don't think that it's going to keep going. I was just at the 20 books to 50K conference in Las Vegas where there were uh, literally a thousand attendees, all of them ambitious indie authors, and and they got into it. And we're kind of in, in gold rush days, and it's a big boom, and everybody's um, running big ad campaigns. And, and I mean – you know, you've you've been on on your show for how many years, Joanna? Just a pushing all this stuff, <laughs> right? But but think about it that in in, in industry wide perspective, this is still like a a new and disruptive part of the business, and it's changing a lot. And I talked to um, a bunch of the people who were at Twenty Books, and I said, guys, you haven't had your first huge boom and bust cycle yet. A lot of them are still kind of on this big upswing, but and I'm not being a a doom and gloom person, but that's just the way the industry works. Something's going to crash in, in some part of it. And you've got to be prepared for that. And I, I kind of make the joke that my own, my own career, I've crashed and burned and then picked myself up and then crashed and burned and then picked myself up so many times uh, and, and resurrected my career. I call myself the doctor sometimes because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the 11th doctor now or something like that. And, and I'm still going. I'm still publishing. I just made a really huge uh, traditional book deal, and I've got a whole bunch of indie books that we're publishing. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm now this very um, uh, busy and happy professor at Western Colorado University where I'm teaching a, a publishing master's degree, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later in the show, I think. Mm. But it's just all kinds of things are happening. And these are all lightning rods that I planted. And you never know when something's going to strike, but, but you have to be ready for it. Mm, and keep creating. And that's why I love to talk to um, you and um, obviously Dean and Chris and people who've been around the industry for long enough to go through these booms and busts, because as you say, this is things are going to change. <laughs> Um, and and you just you know for sure that they are going to change. Even Jeff Bezos said Amazon will be 
disrupted um and that may happen well, and i, I like know. to say there and i don't know if this is this was in the uk or not but here this huge chain in the u.s was blockbuster video where you could go and rent rent videotapes of your movies this was a gigantic chain there was one you know you couldn't drive a mile without coming into another blockbuster video and everybody was investing in blockbuster video because everybody wanted to rent VHS videotapes of their movies. And then suddenly that was completely disrupted and, and they managed to switch over to DVDs. And then that was disrupted and all the blockbuster videos just went away. So if you banked your entire career on the money you were going to make managing a video rental store, that's just not going to happen. It, I mean, it, it goes away. And um, I mean, I'm not going to predict it with indie publishing, but look how fast it appeared. Look how fast it changed. Um, what happens when the next thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wandering off here. What happens when when Kindles become obsolete and there's a holographic reader that everybody has to get, and then everybody <laughs> uh, has to um, change things? You yourself have talked on the show about uh, if you're if you're a writer, and, and a lot of the 20 books people that that I just talked with, they're very rapid writers, and I'm I'm really glad to see people that make me look like I'm slow writer, um, <laughs> but they're writing huge numbers of of series books one after another after another and there are romance writers who are doing this and on your own show you've talked about like the these ai things mm -hmm. that can digest countless kind of formulaic books in a certain genre and start producing books that a large share of the readers won't notice that they're not written by humans well if you're banking on being a prolific um say a Harlequin romance author or or doing that uh, as an indie author and suddenly Hell 9000 becomes a best-selling author then what do you do then you have to change and and if you don't have money saved up in the bank to carry you through that transition period um you might end up having to get a real job somewhere which is a horror <laughs> which is a horror no exactly but i think what's interesting is you know because you've been through these cycles and you have adapted so you know you have indie books you have trad pub books uh you do different rights licensing you work with agents you license books from other authors, you teach. I mean, this is this is the key, right? The key is multiple streams of income and, you know, putting money aside for when difficult times come. But creating intellectual property assets surely must be um, the fundamental. So I want to ask you about this because um, you mentioned Star Wars, you've mentioned X-Files, Dune. You don't own those universes, so you, as far as I know, you know, you, you, your role in the intellectual property asset, maybe you were a writer for hire for Star Wars, for example, I presume. Um, so what are your thoughts on, given that we talked about this at the, um, at the, in, in Vegas at the Business Masterclass, what are your thoughts on rights, ownership and licensing at this point, uh, for authors? Is it critical to, keep control given the fast pace of change or should we be looking to license where appropriate or doing work for hire well back on my my normal thing i do all of the above and one of the things that um i mean i made my career by writing star wars books if i hadn't written star wars books i would not be who I am today. I would not have the the first name that says New York Times bestselling author. And that's what, what skyrocketed my career. And I took advantage of that and I kept going. But 
the reason why I was able to survive, and, and of course, I'm still getting small royalty checks from my Star Wars books, but they were published in uh, 25 years ago, and, and I'm not like making my living on it, but I never only did those books. And I do know other authors that when it was the gold rush days of, of jumping into writing media tie-in books, because th there was a time when every movie had a movie novelization and you could get paid $15,000 for like two weeks worth of work to take a movie script and turn it into a paperback novel. And that was just really good, solid work that you could pay the bills with. And um, I, all of the uh, comic work that I did, all the the Predator comics and and Justice Society comics, and and uh, I don't even remember what the other ones I did, Star Wars comics and X Files comics. Those were great, but I don't make any money on those properties anymore. Now, Dune is a slightly different thing because it really is me and Brian, and we're partners and things, and I do participate in the stuff that I wrote. Um, so that's. Um, I mean, I don't own the IP, but I do uh, benefit from it. Mm. But I also have constantly written my own books. And I know other writers that jumped on the uh, the media tie-in bandwagon, to, to finish my sentence from before, that spent years and years only writing Star Trek books or only writing um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever whatever book that they got. And they made a decent living, but that's a huge output that they created that they own uh, none of it anymore. So they're not reaping any benefit. Uh, there are many uh, of the superhero movies that have taken, like the Marvel superhero movies, have taken huge storylines that somebody wrote for the comics, and that person doesn't even get acknowledged in the uh, the credits. Um, so that's a bad thing, and every one of your listeners is is like nodding about how those authors got shafted, but not really. That's the contract that they signed, and they knew it, that what they were doing. Um, I've had a lot of little things that I created for Star Wars that have appeared in the Star Wars movies or in the um, the Clone Wars TV show. And as a fanboy, I just kind of go, "Ooh, look at that! That's from my book." But you know, I don't go to the mailbox to see if there's a check there. Um, on the other hand. When I was not a full-time writer, when I was just writing books in the evenings and trying to get them published and getting them published, but not making enough money to, to pay all the bills, I was a technical writer. I worked for a research laboratory, and I wrote safety procedures. I wrote respirator safety manuals. I wrote a, the, the definitive handbook on chemical protective clothing, one of my biggest <laughs> sellers. All of, well, and I actually have some, like, Uber fans who have gone out to buy my chemical protective clothing book. But <laughs> but that was my job. I got paid to write that book and it got published and the company owns the copyright on that respirator safety manual. It's not like I expected to get uh, to get royalties on it or anything. That was my job. And even when I was writing the, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie novelization or Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow movie novelization, um, that was that was work. It paid me money, and I paid the bills with it, and it was fun, more fun than chemical protective clothing was. So I was happy to do that work, but it was just a uh, it was work that I did at the time. It's not something that I benefit from anymore. So what I suggest is, if you have a way to make money and pay the bills, if that means you're writing. Spider-Man comics or novels or whatever, and you like Spider-Man, 
I say go for it. Just use your energy to have fun, get build up a fan base, build up readers. But you also need to have the energy to start planting other lightning rods with your own IP because then the lightning might strike over there. Um, you know, if you are a slow writer and you can only write one book a year, you probably won't quit your day job because you probably won't be able to make a living at it in the current publishing industry. Uh, in old traditional days, if you got a big enough advance, you could write a book a year and live on that money. But that just isn't the universe we live in anymore. Mm, and even then, I mean, that you know, there weren't too many people who were who were doing who were getting that much money. You know, the amount of money that I like to live on, for sure. <laughs> but, well, um, let's, let's we, talk. I mean, we, we're we're the top end, of course. We have our our <laughs> you you have your Bentleys and Jaguars that you drive around in, and and. <laughs> Actually, I'm car jets. free. I'm I'm very yes. green, very car free. Um, uh, but anyway, about writing uh, faster. Obviously, you're incredibly prolific, um, and uh, we've talked about dictation before. So I I don't want to get too far into it. But you do have a new book out, well, newish, uh, called How to Be a Dictator. And one of the things that stood out for me in there is uh, a quote: uh, "Writing by dictation is a learned skill, something that requires practice." And I th I feel like this is the thing Thing that many people don't realize they think that they should just pick up a microphone and that they'll be good at it so what is this how can we practice and how can we get better and I'm still not great at it I, I get into uh you know the flow sometimes but a lot of the time I'm I don't dictate because I don't know what to say <laughs> well and that was one of the key things and, and I, I wrote the book it's it's called on being a dictator and I co-authored it with Martin Shoemaker who is one of my writing students who became a a kind of a fanatical dictation writer too. So uh, he and I work together with our different techniques and and uh, ways to do it. But one of the things, and I wrote the book because I got tired of people asking me questions all the time, explain to me how you write by dictation. So now I can just point to the link and say, just read that. Uh, but one of the things that, that I kept hearing from people that they would be so enthusiastic and they'd, they'd get a little digital recorder or even just the app on their, on their uh, smartphone or something. And they'd go, yeah, I went out once for 10 minutes and tried to dictate, but it just doesn't work for me. I'm too self-conscious uh, talking or I don't like the sound of my voice. So I gave up. And I just got frustrated hearing that again and again. And I thought, well, when you sat down at a keyboard for the first time, did you type for 10 minutes and say, I'm no good at this. I'm never going to do this anymore. I'm just going to go back to writing with a pen and paper. Well, no. I mean, with the first time you sat down at a keyboard, putting your fingers on this randomly arranged keys and, and back in history, remember that the keyboard was designed to make typists not type fast so yeah. that the so that the mechanical typewriter keys wouldn't get all tangled up so that the keys were originally arranged to make people slow down when they're typing. So the first time you sat down, you're hunting and pecking with your fingers and trying to like, where's the letter Q and where's the letter K? And, and, but as you kept doing it, you started to learn and now you don't even think about typing anymore. I assume, I mean, I, I'm looking at the screen or looking off and I'm, my fingers are all across the keyboards as I'm, as I'm rattling away because I've been typing for most of my life. Mm -hmm. I know how to do it. Well, I've also been dictating for most of my writing career. And I, I'm, I seriously mean I've been dictating my novels uh, for probably 
25 years because I like um, I like to go walking and just mulling things over, and that's the place where my creative juices flow better. And so first off, get it in your head that you need to practice at it. But the thing uh, that might help you, because I know you're a pantser most of the time, mm. uh, and other other writers – I love using dictation for just a sort of like a solo brainstorming session. And like if I'm starting a book and I've got this cast of characters and I don't know anything about about the villain or I don't know anything about the spunky kid or I don't know anything about the seductress or I don't know anything about the um, the, the thief with the heart of gold or whoever the, the uh, character is that I'm working on, I'll just go, okay, well, today I'm going to – figure out the life story of Prince Aiden. And so I'll go out with my recorder and I'll just walk and I'll just kind of free associate. Well, Aiden was, uh, he was the second son and he never liked his older brother, but he had to um, go to training with him because his tutors in the castle, uh, they could only afford one tutor in the castle. So both princes had to be taught at the same time and they would fight each other and play pranks. And then I'd make up something about some prank that they did. Cause that's going to end up as a tiny little flashback in the book. And then I just start, um, thinking of that character and, and kind of babbling into my recorder because, Nobody else needs to see that. That doesn't have to be perfect prose. It doesn't have to be punctuated. It doesn't have to be spelled or anything. This is just me dictating notes because I find when I'm sitting there with either typing or, or with notes like this, I often will will really just use a, a notepad and pen and sit on a bench somewhere out in the park or something. Um, I can be walking along and just basically like an like an actor putting on the suit of this character he's supposed to play. I can do that with my recorder and just get to know my characters. Um, the reason that I started writing by dictation, sort of I fell into it by accident in that uh, I liked to go out for walks when I was having trouble with a, a story, with a character, with a – I couldn't come up with a plot twist or something. And I would just – go for a walk down the bike path or, or on a hiking trail. And I just think about things and I'd have a little like notepad in my pocket or something. And, and I would jot down ideas as I had them, but it's kind of a pain in the butt to be jotting down complicated ideas on this little um, notepad, especially if it's like foggy or raining outside. And sometimes I would come up with great ideas and then I'd run home and try to type them all up <laughs> and they'd all be gone by the time I got home. So I started carrying this uh, recorder with me just so I could turn it on and go, oh, don't forget to add this plot thread when you do book two or something like that. It just was taking notes. And as I started laying out – and I write these big, complicated, um, multi-character books, kind of like Game of Thrones with all sorts of different perspectives. And I would try to choreograph like the big space battle at the end and this this character brings in this fleet and this person sabotages these weapon systems and this – and I just sort of outlined um, almost like drawing a storyboard for a movie, the little scene, little scene, little scene, and I would I would break them up. And they just got more and more detailed as I got practiced in it and I realized that, well, heck, this isn't an outline anymore. This is a first draft and I just developed it from that point. And in our, our book on being a dictator, my co-author uses 
Dragon Naturally Speaking or some other uh, voice-to-text softwares, and he tested them out and gives his report on them. And that's what a lot of authors do. Uh, I still go back to the old-fashioned using a human typist that, that I just send the audio files to, and, and she types it and sends it back to me usually within a, a day or so. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages. I mean, using Dragon and other things, of course, once you paid for the software, then you get it done for free. Mm. The problem is that there's so much cleanup involved because the AI doesn't understand context or punctuation or anything like that. So you have to go back and either add it when you're editing or you have to, as you're dictating, comma, close quote or something like that, which to me that rips me right out of the story because I've dug deep in into the story I'm telling. And the human typist, I can just basically read it aloud and she'll know when to put the paragraphs in without me having to say it. And she'll know when it's two different people talking in dialogue and know to put the quote marks and all that stuff in. So I, and, and it also is kind of cool when the typist is nagging me like, when's the next chapter coming? <laughs> um, so it's, it's, which is great. And there's a lot more in the book. So I definitely urge people to get it if you're considering dictation. Uh, it's still something I keep circling back to and, you know, want to get it right. <laughs> but, it, you know, you just have well, to keep you... keep practicing it. And, um, you know, as you say, I think I need to do it in a more circular manner, as in try try and write something, just notes, and then go back through with a sort of first draft type of approach. Well, and don't forget, you yourself wrote the book on, on being a healthy writer, too. And if you're out walking and dictating, you're getting all this exercise and and it's keeping you healthy, too. So that's oh, yeah. another benefit. Oh, there are so many benefits of dictation, which is why I keep talking about it on this show, <laughs> because I, you know, I just determined. But um, I want to because we, you know, I did, we've got so many things I'd like to talk to you about. But you've recently become a professor at Western Colorado University, teaching a degree in publishing that covers both independent publishing and the traditional world. Now, um, you know, obviously most people listening are not going to do that course, but I was really interested in what has surprised you the most, because obviously you've had to put together the material for these students and, um, you know, you've had to revisit a lot of what's going on, I guess, in the industry. So is there anything that has made you sort of surprised or kind of, wow, you know, that really is quite different? Well, what what surprised me was that in order to take the job as a professor, I had to get my own MFA, which I (laughs) I got a bachelor's degree in astronomy and and physics way, way back when. And I've never needed to have an MFA. But so in order by by law, in order to teach a, a graduate degree, you have to have your own graduate degree. So I had to go back myself after having published 150 books and 50 some bestsellers. And then I had to go and get an MFA and take classes with like grad students who were publishing their first story and stuff. So that was that was an interesting perspective on going back to school my, myself. Uh, I think there was a really old Rodney Dangerfield movie called Back to School where he had to go back. But my, my experience was a little bit different from his. Um, but teaching something is really a good way to, to learn the details of something that you sort of know, but you never actually put it all down and, and codified it. And, and there are people who who want to go through the process. And it's only a one-year program for my, my master's degree. Uh, and it's an MA, not an MFA for academics who, who know the difference of those. Um, but being able to be 
organized and go through and we have a program that it's specifically two courses. One is on traditional publishing and one is on Indian new model publishing. And, and to my knowledge, I don't know of any other degree that's giving uh, equal weight to both both phases of publishing. A lot of them are still uh, just strictly traditional publishing focused. And obviously, I didn't want to do something like that because I'm a hybrid author and doing both. Um, but what and their Western is giving me a, a real lot of uh, freedom and support in, in developing this. And when I first started looking at Western and it's Western Colorado University, I keep saying that um, mm-hmm. when I started looking at it, they have an MFA program, but they're really cool. They got an MFA program in genre fiction. So you can get your master's degree in in genre fiction, where you actually study romances and Westerns and mysteries and thrillers and, and like, None of my academic classes ever did that. They all made me read stuff that no human being would ever want to read. Uh, they they would make me read, you know, free form um, poetic essays that were <laughs> published as fiction that had no punctuation in it, and and you know that just didn't work for me. But but Western's got the they've got a, um, a screenwriting program, they've got a genre fiction program, they've got a, a poetry program and a nature writing program, and it just it just clicked with me that I thought this was a place that I could have a, a program that I could really get behind. And so I developed it. And like I said, both traditional and uh, indie publishing. And so the students uh, on the traditional half, uh, they are putting together their own professional anthology. Uh, we got money from Draft2Digital, who is helping me pay uh, professional rates for these stories. And we solicited stories. It's called Monsters, Movies, and Mayhem. And they we sent out the call for stories, and we got 420 submissions come in. So my students got to read the slush pile, and they went <laughs> through them all. And they've, they've gone through their first cut and rejected a whole bunch of them, and now we're down to, I think, like the top 85, and they're going through the second cut. And they will they – will, choose the the stories that they want they'll work with the authors right now the classes we're doing this week are on on short story contracts and book publishing contracts and uh, and this is in the traditional side so we will have um, they will do the proofreading they will do the editing they'll work with the authors they're sending out they're mailing out all the rejection slips they're mailing out all the all the contracts when we get them ready and then we will produce uh, design and produce the book next spring. And when they come, it, this is an all an online course. So everything's online except for a two week residency in the summertime when they, when they have to come to the Colorado mountains for two weeks, which darn, I would hate to be in the Colorado mountains in the summertime. Darn. <laughs> um, so, so we're going to release this book when they come back next summer and they'll do a book signing. And, and this is the anthology that they've edited. And then for the the indie publishing course, each one of them is reissuing an old public domain title, like an H.G. Wells book or a Jules Verne book or something like that, that they're finding books that have been long out of print that they want to reissue. And they're doing it hands-on, start to finish. Um, they'll, they'll find the text. They'll verify that it's out of copyright. Um, they, uh, they're proofing their own text. They will design it. We're, we're making them all by vellum so that they can lay it out. Um and I just wrote to the guys at Vellum saying, all of my students are using Vellum. Um, <laughs> and because I'm not going to try to teach anything else, Vellum is great. I've been using it for everything that we do at, at Wordfire Press. And so they're reissuing it. They're going to design their own covers. They're going to – it's all hands-on. And then for 
like the weekly lectures, we are talking about um, copyright and we'll be doing sections on um, Kickstarters and and uh, uh, Patreon and Amazon ads and, and all kinds of marketing things and review copies and um, all the stuff that I sort of learned in in a blizzard fashion as it all came around at the same time but i'm trying to do it in a more organized fashion and uh and you can get a degree on it and there are people who want to get a graduate degree Mm -hmm. i'm not obviously i didn't need one to become a best-selling author but there are people that that want one and and like i said i i love western's genre fiction program i thought i would have taken that if i knew it was available back when i was starting out Mm -hmm. and uh um and, and having a master's degree may help you in many other things in life, um, and you'll know a lot about publishing. So uh, it's it's just a – well, it's 13 months, so it's July to, to July. And the first year, we're in the first group of students right now, uh, we filled up our, our cohort. This, this was kind of surprised everybody because we were hoping to get a couple of applicants, and then we got um, five applicants, and then we got seven, and then we got nine, and the law won't let us have more than nine because that's the most grad students I can have. And so we've also just hired our second uh, professor to help me teach next summer, and that's Allison Longuera, who you know, it's a publisher of WMG, and she's going to be helping us out. Uh, Mark Lefebvre at Draft to Digital, he's going to be our guest speaker next summer, and uh, <laughs> it's just a, a great. It, it's I would love to have taken this when I was starting out, which is was kind of my goal when I wanted to put it together. I I decided that we really should have a program that is useful and hands on, and and uh, unlike the stuff that I took when I was getting my degree. So, yeah. And I think, I think what's interesting is, uh, that many people write their book and then they start looking at publishing and what you've described. I mean, even a 13 month course is, it's going to be intensive and I haven't got a degree in writing or publishing and, but it's taken me a decade to learn what I know now. And so I think this is so important because we have to learn our craft, but we also have to learn publishing if we're going to be successful indie authors and successful hybrid authors, like the more you understand about this stuff, the better copyright, for example, you know, who gets taught that stuff? So um, I think it's very interesting. And I I expect there to be more of even where I live in Bath, Bath Spa University is actually quite famous for its publishing um, degree. And as far as I know, they don't <laughs> offer anything <laughs> in the right. indie space <laughs> at all. But I think that, you know, that these you know, however people listening, you know, you don't necessarily need a, an official degree, but you certainly need to invest in education around all of this stuff because it doesn't well, just but, come naturally. And especially with, with indie stuff right now, it, it's it's not like you learn it once and you're done. No. <laughs> and, and, and like for, for my indie publishing class, there's not a textbook. What I've required them to subscribe to Publishers Weekly, and they have to read it every week. Uh, they listen to podcasts, uh, including yours, Joanna. They've had two of your episodes assigned. Uh, they listen to podcasts. They read uh, blogs. Uh, we have them do uh, Mark Dawson's podcast. We It's sort of – I pick one every week, the Cobra mm-hmm. Writing Life podcast, uh, because everything changes, and they need to know how to keep up with things, and it's not – it's not so much 
the the content of that particular episode of that particular podcast, they need to learn how to keep up with the changes in the industry because we all have to do it. I, I mean, I spend most of my time just trying to like on the gerbil wheel, just trying to keep, Oh, now that changed. And now that changed. And, and yes, I went as a speaker to the 20 books conference in Las Vegas. And I went as a speaker to the WMG masterclass, but I also sat there and just absorbed like a sponge because all sorts of these things are, are subjects that I don't know about or something new changed or, or there's a new technique of doing something. And, uh, to be successful, you have to, uh, keep learning that. And then that kind of ties in with the lightning rods and everything. You, you can't just sit there and, and expect nothing to change. You, you've got to have, obviously you have to have lots of energy and lots of coffee or tea or something like that. I've had some of your or, coffee. It's excellent. I, I, I have, I have made you coffee and I watched your eyeballs pop open going, wow, that's strong. I, <laughs> but I think, so you know, this is what I, I really appreciate about you, Kevin, and also Dean and Chris. And, you know, the, you are all giants in the field. Like you are, you have these wonderful books. You are experts. You know, you really know how to do books, but you just have this wonderful attitude of keep learning, keep adapting and keep changing because the people who don't, there are some brilliant writers who are very good at the craft, who have fallen by the wayside because they have not adapted. I mean, even just the time I've been in this industry, most of the people I've met have disappeared. <laughs> well, and and in Dean and Chris, I've I've known Chris, we always pull this out. I mean, we I've known Chris since I was 19 years old when we were met in a creative writing class in college. And we had this, we were like helping each other, pulling, pulling each other up by our bootstraps and, and learning this stuff. And I remember before my first book got published, there were certain names in the field that, oh, if only I can get a book published like him, or if only I can um, reach that level or get, get this mention on this awards ballot. And almost all of the people that were around when I broke into the business are just not there. They, they've gone. Uh, and not because they've become so wealthy that they've retired, that they, they've just, they didn't keep writing fast enough, or they didn't change with the interests of the readership. Uh, they were blindsided when, you know, the, the big 12 publishers became the big five publishers. And when Borders Books chain went out of business, that was a heavily genre-oriented bookstore. So, it the the loss of borders books really hurt us genre fiction writers more so than than um other stuff uh the changes in all of the writing i mean i made a really good living writing movie movie tie-ins uh, media spin-offs uh, star trek books uh, star wars books all these things and all that work really dried up fast I mean, because paperbacks went away and I mean, that's a whole episode that we can talk about. But mm. but uh, all of that work that all of my friends just assumed was going to go on forever and ever and ever just plain went away, just like the blockbuster video stores, like I mentioned earlier. So unless you've got your house paid off and everything and you're independently wealthy and you don't need to make money anymore, you got to figure out a different way because the the books that you wrote last year 
may not be as popular next year. And you got to learn, you got to adapt because um, I want to make my living by writing, damn it. I don't want to have to get a real job. So. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, look, it's always wonderful to talk to you. So where can people find you and everything you do online? Well, my look up my name on Facebook. That's kind of the obvious um, Kevin J. Anderson on Facebook and Twitter. It's it's the and then my initials, the KJA and my website, which uh, sadly is in the process of being updated. But it's it's got some good stuff on it is wordfire.com. Uh, wordfirepress.com is where all of my uh, publishing houses uh, releases are. And. Uh, I think we'll put a link in the show notes, but the, just Google Western Colorado University Publishing, and you should get all the information for the master's program. And um, and I do like 13 to 20 shows a year, whether I'm talking or lecturing or signing books at a comic con. So I'm I'm not in the witness protection program. Let's just put it that way. I'm not I'm not too hard to find. Fantastic! Thanks so much for your time, Kevin. That was great. Thanks, Joanna. Great. So I hope you found the interview with Kevin interesting today. It is so important about how we can think about creating for the long term, but also fund our lives and our writing. And of course, a day job is the most common way that people do that. And it's absolutely brilliant to have a day job um, because you don't have to worry so much <laughs> about money. <laughs> but if you do want to be a long time, a long term, full time creative like Kevin, and I am coming into year nine of this, so this type of thing is stuff I think about. Out a lot. Um, once you're nine years out of a day job, you are kind of unemployable. <laughs> hence the podcast I mentioned earlier. But yeah, nine years in, I am very keen to never go back to a day job. I want to keep creating. Um, So staying up to date with the changes in the industry are super important. So hopefully we gave you a few thoughts today. So next week, I'm talking uh, about From Book to Hollywood Film with Ken Achety, who produced The Meg, amongst many other things that he's done. Now, if you're like me and you enjoy action movies with lots of explosions and monsters and stuff, then you'll know The Meg. And of course, if you like Jason Statham... (laughs) Uh, then uh, you will also know the Meg. Many of you will now be grinning because you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter (laughs) because uh, we don't talk about that very much. What we do talk about is the Meg was a book first. Um, I've read the book by a guy called Steve Alton and it's very interesting to hear how the book became a blockbuster film. That is what we're interested in as authors, not the particular film, but the process of how things go from book to film. Now, Ken is also interesting because he was a professor of literature. He was in academia and he went from academia into Hollywood uh, and he wanted to stop talking about stories and become uh, a maker of stories and a sharer of stories. So he has a really interesting view of both sides. We also talk about the very important log line. And this is something I still struggle with. (laughs) So that is coming next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. 
See you next time.